Hi there. I'm so excited to welcome you to the Arthritis Life Podcast, where we share arthritis life stories and tips for thriving with autoimmune arthritis. My name is Cheryl Crow, and I am passionate about helping people navigate real life with arthritis beyond joint pain. I've been living with rheumatoid arthritis for 20 years, and I'm also a mom, occupational therapist, video creator, support group leader, and I created the Room to Thrive self-management program. I am so excited to help you live a more empowered life with arthritis. We're going to cover everything from kitchen life hacks to navigating the healthcare system to coping with friends who just don't get it. Seriously, no topic is going to be off limits on this podcast. My interviewees and I share our honest stories of how chronic illness affects our lives. This includes discussions about mental health, sex, shame, pregnancy, body image, advocacy, self-acceptance, and so much more. You'll hear stories from all ends of the spectrum, from a person who's living in Medicaid remission from psoriatic arthritis to somebody living with severe mobility restrictions and severe pain from rheumatoid arthritis. You'll hear how people manage their conditions in different ways, like medications, mindfulness, movement, social support, work accommodations, and so much more. You'll also hear from rheumatology experts who just get it. We'll dive deep into the science behind chronic pain and what's the latest evidence for lifestyle changes that can help you thrive with arthritis, including exercise, sleep, nutrition, stress reduction, and more. This is your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. I'm so excited today to have a chronic pain researcher and many other, she wears many hats, Afton Hassett with us today. Welcome. Oh, thank you, Cheryl. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me to be part of your podcast. Oh, it's so great. Um, and if you could just let the audience know a little bit about yourself, like where you live and what is your relationship to autoimmune illness and chronic pain? Well, I live in Ann Arbor now. I've been here for about 13 years. I'm um, an associate professor in the Department of Anesthesiology at the University of Michigan, and I'm part of one of the largest pain research teams in the entire world. It's the Chronic Pain and Fatigue Research Center, led by Dan Claw. And so I am blessed to be working with some of the most exciting, fascinating, novel researchers around, and in a great environment. We really love Ann Arbor, so that's kind of where I am at now. That's wonderful. One of my best friends went to University of Michigan Business School. Um, and ah, so I yes. visited and yeah, absolutely fell in love with the town. And it's just, it's wonderful to have you here because um, I think there is so much misinformation out there about chronic pain or the, the mm. science has changed, you know, so much over the yeah. years. And so, um, but before we delve into that, um, I would love to know a little bit about your story. Like what led you mm -hmm. to become a you know specialist in chronic pain. Wow. So this goes back some time. This is back when I was studying um, clinical psychology in San Diego. At that time, I was um, in a clinical psychology program and I was working on my doctorate and I was working as a, um, as a psych psychology intern at a center where I was treating a number of women who um, had chronic pain. And I was so interested in their in their stories and their their tremendous courage and what they'd been through and and I just didn't understand enough about pain, and so I talked to my supervisor about this and she said, "Well, the main thing you need to do 
is you need to take a few minutes and go to the UCSD Medical Library and look up chronic pain. Learn a little bit about fibromyalgia, learn a bit about rheumatoid arthritis, learn about osteoarthritis, and just become familiar with how pain um, affects people's lives. And I have to tell you, Cheryl, I was hooked. I was amazed at what an incredible um, impact pain has on human life and how it affects every aspect of someone's life, their friendships, their ability to move, the quality of the activities that they can do. It is just a profound impact. And so that was the first thing that struck me. The second was that pain is not just a physiological event. That pain is so closely tied to our emotions, to our thoughts, to the stresses in the environment, to um, even our relationships. Pain can fluctuate incredibly just in the context of one's stress. And so I think upon reading those journals, um, I was hooked. And what was, this is actually kind of crazy because it was a long time ago, Cheryl. It was back in the days when we went to libraries physically and we yes. walked up and down the aisles and pulled great big, huge bookshelves, books off the shelves that had all these articles from scientific journals. And I just remember sitting in this freezing cold library and reading these these incredible, incredible cases. And it just, it just became my passion. It's like, I want to help these people. I want to understand pain. I want to understand rheumatic disease and I want to help. But as a psychologist, there's limitations. And so I really had to think about what can I do? How can I contribute? And that's what kind of led me um, to wanting to understand more about emotions, thoughts, and behaviors and the role in pain. Yeah. And I think, oh my gosh, well, yeah, first of all, I just, my hat goes off to anyone who wants to serve this population because it can be really, really complex and challenging, right? I think when I first became an occupational therapist, I actually didn't want to specialize or in rheumatic disease for many reasons. One of them was that I was worried about my own work-life balance, that it would be too hard for me to have a separation. But the other is that, um, I want to fix it and you mm -hmm. can't <laughs> like, yeah. and so it's like, you could look at that as a glass half full or glass half, em half empty. I know that we're going to talk about like resilience and coping and having experiencing positive things with pain. So you could say, okay, maybe we can't fix the sensation of pain, but we can adjust your relationship to the pain, but also it's just, gosh, it's just hard. So I'm thankful that you, that you were, that you were not intimidated or turned off by it, especially because you don't live with pain or do you, do you live with pain I, yourself? Okay. I am blessed. I do not, but I certainly have many people in my life who do. And, yeah. uh, and maybe later we can get to this, but my, my husband is one. And so, Oh, okay. That, yeah, that, no, that's, that's, I mean, your husband's, I mean, lucky to have someone who understands pain so much, I'm sure. Yes. Um, but yeah, you mentioned that pain is not just quote unquote in the body, or it's not just right. the physical. I think for, I'm going to speak for some of the people I know in the audience who sometimes we can feel defensive. Like, what do you mean? You're saying it's in my head. Mm. Um, and how do you kind of help teach people about, no, it doesn't mean that it's in your head. Yeah. Like, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. No. It, and this is one of the hardest um, concepts that, that we that we want to convey. So I think part of the reason I was so attracted to coming to University of Michigan is I was a, I was a little groupie fan 
of Dan Claw and the work that was coming out of, out of the time, Georgetown, but then eventually University of Michigan, where they were doing these phenomenal neuroimaging studies that really blew me away. And I think they were really some of the first um, scientists to show that the pain in chronic pain, especially fibromyalgia, is not... Um, is not something of exaggeration. People aren't just saying that they have more pain. They have more pain and it's shown in neuroimaging. Their studies took individuals with fibromyalgia and put them in a neuroimaging scanner so they can have a, a scan of the brain and applied um, kind of dull pain to the thumbnail. So they did that in a number of, of individuals with fibromyalgia and then they also did it in healthy pain-free controls. And what they found is they had to apply twice as much pain to the thumb beds of the healthy non-pain controls to get the same pain rating and the same neural activation. So what, we're, what we are seeing in those early, early studies was that the brain was overreacting to the signal of pain. It was actually amplifying. And so these early data said, hey, this is not a case of exaggeration. This is a case of the brain is processing pain in a different way. And that has really been at the core of pain research at the Chronic Pain and Fatigue Research Center and really across the world now. And over the last 10 years, most research in chronic pain has been looking at this phenomenon of how the brain takes what might be a benign signal, like you know something that might be slightly painful, and interprets it as being tremendously painful. And what is fascinating is we're also seeing this with other senses. So information that comes in from sight, where light might be detected as incredibly bright and painful, or sense, you know, that a, a smell might be felt as just incredibly overwhelming. Again, it's like the central nervous system and the brain are now processing or amplifying all of these external signals. So while we have a little sense of the... Um, underlying physiology of pain, this also opens the door for how thoughts and emotions might play a role. So Cheryl, you might ask, how does this happen? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. And I know that that could be a, you know, five hour long lecture yes. just on that topic, but yes. yeah. But just, just briefly, we, we see that the areas of the brain that process pain tend to also process emotions and thoughts. And so we see kind of this co-activation or just shared circuitry in the brain. And that begins to lay the, the groundwork for biologically how it is that when we feel stress and we're thinking negative thoughts or, or we're afraid that pain can feel so much worse. It's all going on in the brain. So it's not in one's head. It's in one's brain. Yeah. Yeah. And when we say in the head, it's like a shorthand mm -hmm. for some people, meaning that you're making it up or it's not yeah. really real, but yeah. yeah. One of the um, first times this was explained to me, I think it was in occupational therapy school. Maybe this is an outdated reference now, but it's, it really stuck with me, which is like the idea that if you're in a calm environment and you're just walking to the bathroom and you step on a thumbtack, mm -hmm. you're going to really um, experience that as like, oh, ouch, like I'm putting mm -hmm. all my attention to that. Like, yes. Um, versus if you're being chased by mm -hmm. a lion and you happen <laughs> to step on a thumbtack, yeah. it's like you're maybe the same degree of tissue damage happening yeah. on your foot 
but because of the context and your brain yes. diverting its resources towards survival mm-hmm. and you know everything else happening neurologically with the stress levels it's not going to be perceived right. right the same right. so i thought anyway i don't do people still teach that example oh it, it's a great example oh, and, great. And there, <laughs> oh, yeah and there, there are many like that it's just that you know what we pay attention to what would we attend to what we, pay, what we pay attention to is really what we experience and if we think about all the bits of information that are coming in at our brains right now, I mean, if we sit still and think about the way our clothes feel in our bodies, there might be an itch somewhere like my nose just itched. <laughs> yeah, there might be um, some odd little pain, maybe our shoe is too tight. But generally, all that information is screened out. We're totally not aware of that. Till we take a moment and get centered and say, oh, my shoe is too tight or oh, I do have an itch. Pain is very bossy and it yells for our attention. And so we do tend to attend to it more than other things, but also we can choose to some degree not to attend it. Like you said, when you're running from the line, all of a sudden pain doesn't matter. Or you think of the athlete in the football game who has, you know, perhaps broken a bone and yet continues to play through. And then at the end of the game goes, oh my God, ouch, (laughs) I I broke my finger. (laughs) No, it's, it's really fascinating. And so I know that your research has focused on the importance of like positive emotions for people with chronic pain. And it, I know to the lay person, it might seem like, wait a minute, yeah. it's not, how can you add a positive emotion to yeah. an experience that's in feels intrinsically negative, which is pain, right? So how, I'm just curious, um, how did you come to focus on that? And then what are some of the interesting findings? Yeah. So, you know, I kind of came at this sideways. So I wasn't always taken by resilience and, and positive emotions. And uh, and I, I came here because of my dissertation. So when, like most doctoral students, when I came up with my dissertation topic, I was looking at pain in individuals with fibromyalgia, rheumatoid ar- and rheumatoid arthritis, and looking at differences in how pain was experienced and how and what other factors might impact it. And what I was pretty certain of is that the people who had pain were going to have a lot of negative emotions. I was pretty sure it's going to be a lot of catastrophizing, a lot of pain. And that sure wasn't what I found, neither in the people with rheumatoid arthritis or the people with fibromyalgia. As a matter of fact, about half of both sets of patients really looked healthy. They actually looked healthier than all of us who were doing their psychological analyses. <laughs> they were just resilient and great, but they still had a ton of pain. And so while it kind of blew up my dissertation a little bit, it did make me think about what is resilience? What, what, how do people have these cr- tremendously painful diseases and this disruption to their lives and yet not become depressed and yet still bounce back? And so I really, you know, 20 some odd years ago, became so interested in that. And so that became my passion, understanding who are these individuals who do so well despite illness? How do we bottle that for others? And that's really been the course of it. Oh my gosh. No, I was just, that reminds me so much of, um, I'm sure you're aware of Dr. Marty Seligman. Very well. With the positive, I don't know, maybe you know him, but yeah. yeah. I do. Oh my gosh. Ah, he's like, I mean, you're amazing and he's amazing. Yeah, I was at an undergrad when I discovered his recent, you know, his, he had just opened the center on positive psychology and he had the same kind of experience you did. It sounds like where he was like, everyone's looking at post-traumatic stress. What about post-traumatic growth? Why is it that some children, like I read the optimistic child, you know, why are some children raised in really 
um, severely like neglected situations or things that you would be, be traumatizing to that to some of the kids, they just are resilient. Yeah. So I just, I love, I love this topic because, um, it resonates with my personal, um, observations of, of being part of the rheumatoid arthritis community. There's so much, you know, in a way I'm almost like, I say sometimes like these are some of the strongest people I've ever met, you know? Um, and I don't mean to say that in like a, I don't know if you've heard the phrase inspiration porn before, yeah. where people kind of like, I don't yeah. mean it that way. No, I mean, it it's like, true, but it's true. It's like, true. yeah. So, so yeah. I, and I, I think first of all, I commend you for having the, you know, um, the, the courage to blow up your, uh, your <laughs> thesis, right. Because that is actually some of the most exciting findings, right. Are the yeah. ones that you didn't, that don't go with your right. hypothesis. So yeah. What, what, are those resilient people doing? (laughs) (laughs) That's what I want to know. And and I guess, you know, we mentioned Marty, I can tell you how I met him. And and it actually is kind of part of this, how did I got to positive psychology story? So soon after completing my dissertation, and I, you know, I really kind of, I finished it, I defended it, I set it aside. And I thought, yeah, I got to come back to that someday. What is this resilience business? And um, a couple years after that, I was actually um, meeting with somebody in industry and working for one uh, at a pharma at a pharma company who did global outcomes, and he approached me. He said, "Hey, we're so much more interested in in quality of life. We, we've got this new drug for rheumatoid arthritis and probably lupus, and we're super excited about it. And we're seeing something weird, and we want you to come over and take a look at it." And I said, "Okay." And so I packed on over to the pharma company. And, and uh, sat down with them and they said, okay, we don't know how to explain this, but we want you to see this. Okay, so what we did is before our, um, before our clinical trial, we had people with rheumatoid arthritis talk about their lives. And they just kind of described what they were experiencing, what, you know, what, what the pain was like, what the loss was like. And, and then after they were on the medication for a while, we re-interviewed them and we, you know, and we want you just to see. Okay, so I looked at the first set of videos before the intervention, and it was people talking about how hard it is to have some of these diseases and how disruptive it is and how things have changed in their lives. And, and you know, and, and they looked duly sad and, and upset. And then Soon after the intervention of a very successful compound, a very successful drug, they showed me videos of like people going, and now I'm picking up my grandchildren, I'm running errands, and I'm doing this, and look, I can do this with my hand. And they said, so what do you make of this? And what's going on in these videos? And I said, well, people were not happy, and now they're happy, and I have no idea how to study this. And so I reached out to Martin Seligman at that point and said, hey, we got this, we have a situation where we, you know, we want to be able to talk about these quality of life changes and people have been in a clinical trial and I really don't know how to quantify happiness. And so that was kind of our first, you know, our first work together. And, you know, how do we talk about well-being? How do we talk about happiness? What does it mean in people with rheumatoid arthritis? And so, yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's so, I love that. And it really, it, it resonates with me as an occupational therapist, right? Yeah. Cause we're really talking about participation, yes. right? So the, the, the uncontrolled disease by itself poses, right. A barrier to your participation. You can't pick up your grandkids. Yeah. You can't read a book. You can't, you know, or maybe you can do those things, but it's laborious or painful or energetically mm-hmm. taxing. So then yeah, then you're alleviating this this burden, but yeah, we don't have we we have to look at how do you actually 
measure that. You're like, we yeah. saw five times more smiles in the video. <laughs> exactly. It reminds me of John Gottman's <laughs> videos. Um, my, it turns out, I did not know this when I found her, but my therapist in Seattle studied with, got her clinical psych doctorate under Dr. John Gottman, no. who does the marriage research. Yes. And, um, and she, she helped, um, what they did was they, they analyzed videos of people talking with their spouses and they analyzed, they coded every frame for their micro expressions. Yes. <laughs> so that, that was why I was like, maybe you guys could do the micro expressions anyway, but back to, yeah. So you, you were helping That's the awesome. pharmaceutical company quantify those quality yes. of life, um, which first of all, I'm glad yeah. that a lot of people are negative about pharmaceutical companies, oh, yeah. but, um, you know, there's no denying anyone who's been around the rheumatology field for the last two decades or maybe three decades. And you'd see the pre and post the, yeah. the improvements in quality of life are, are stunning, stunning. due to medications. Yeah. yeah. And I'm not saying no, no one's paying me to say that. No, me neither. And I, and I noticed I mentioned no company, but what I do have to say is the people I work with were all ex rheumatologists or you had been oh, practicing. Okay. And so they understood the patients and they were really passionate and really were able to say quality of life is so important. And so that's why I was compelled to kind of help and, and to bring, you know, Marty in on that. That's so, oh yeah. So what did, yeah. How did oh, you guys decide to quantify so it or yeah. What we did is we actually thought about it in terms terms of well-being and that we the question was could, could, can people actually look at videos like at a pre-video of somebody and a post-video and actually quantify a level of improvement and we showed that um that healthcare providers do this quite easily all the time and so you know, it, we were kind of just proving what we knew duh <laughs> but but again because so little has been done on positive emotions in medicine at that time it was kind of groundbreaking and then, um, and recently, um, I, I can just do a little offshoot because it's a, it's a study that, that Martin Seligman and I published together. They're doing a marvelous, um, a marvelous job of training our soldiers. So all army soldiers get a resilience training course that's kind of taught by their drill sergeants. It's kind of, kind of is, is um, passed down as, you know, we train the trainer. And the goal is that pre-deployment, that if we can teach some of these resilient skills, that they'll be more likely to come home with less, um, with less depression, PTSD, anxiety, and even chronic pain. And so the study that, um, that Marty and I worked on was looking at um, individuals who were deployed to either Iraq or Afghanistan over a long period of time. And we looked at I think it was 10,000 soldiers and over multiple deployments. And our question was, can positive factors potentially predict who will not come home with new depression, with new, with new um, chronic pain? And we found that of all things, optimism predicted the soldiers who would not develop new chronic pain after deployments, even multiple deployments, even, even, um, being injured themselves, seeing somebody in, injured, seeing something very gruesome and terrible, all these kind of battle entanglements, no matter what, just having higher levels of optimism was incredibly protective for them returning home and not developing new chronic pain. And so, wow. yeah. I'm going to link to that in the show notes yes. and, uh, and along with the other research. And I'm sorry, I think yes. I, I feel like I didn't do my due diligence of, I, I saw that, but I was like, oh, that doesn't relate to me because it's soldiers. <laughs> but I was like, wait a minute. I didn't see this actually with Dr. Seligman too. That's so yes. cool. But uh, yeah, I think, yeah, that the, in a way it's like preventative medicine. Like, can you preventatively mm -hmm. teach yeah. optimism yes. or, 
you know, and teach these resiliency strategies. Yeah. And I know I will say I posted once like this little sticker I made that says reluctantly resilient. Cause I want to like acknowledge that <laughs> some people are like, I don't need resiliency training. I just need you all to like accommodate me, which I totally get, but it's like un- at the end of the day, yeah, it's going to make your quality of life better to look into this at least and yeah. see if it resonates. I, I think for most people, you know, developing, um, uh, different, different ways of interpreting, yeah. you know, what's going on in your, in your life and, and developing that resiliency is, is yeah. for me really important personally, yeah. but and you know, it's not about being a silly optimist and not, yeah. you know, recognizing that there is a difficulty in the world and that this isn't difficult to live with, with a chronic illness, but it's about something a little different. It's about, this is kind of where I'm at. And now yeah. I got to make a choice of where I go to lead a life that feels more rewarding. And yeah. these things aren't just given. Sometimes right. we have to take life. <laughs> oh, that's, that's so true. And I think a lot of times people think, oh, looking at the positive side or, or looking at the possibilities, um, it seems like actually easy, but to mm-hmm. me, it's actually harder, right? Yeah. It would be easy for me to just say, I have RA, my life sucks. I give mm-hmm. up. Like mm-hmm. it's harder to say, no, I'm going to take the mental energy and time. Yeah. Sorry, I'm sounding defensive now, but um, <laughs> But, you know, people or, or people will say things like it's easy for you because your disease is well controlled. I'm like, well, I'm on my fifth biologic in, mm-hmm. ten, in 20 years. So, yes, we're all on a spectrum, right? I'm not as severely impacted as somebody w- who's had no response to treatment, mm-hmm. yeah. but I am. I mean, I have erosions. I have deformities, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, you know, anyway, you can play, you know, comparison Olympics. Mm-hmm. Um but, but sorry, I'm off track. This <laughs> no, no, but so well said, because you, you're, you're saying that almost no matter kind of what your state is there, there, it's a kind of incumbent upon you to make a decision about what kind of life you still want to have. Mm. Yeah. Right? It sounds, it really reminds me of the choice point and acceptance mm-hmm. and commitment therapy, yes. you know, and that's like, yeah. that's what I'm always harping on. And, and on the podcast is it's just my like obsession right now is it's just really helped me a lot, but, um, but I know that most, you know, researchers and, and psychologists are kind of using a, what would you call it? eclectic, like you use multiple tools in your, mm-hmm. in your yeah. toolbox, but yeah. um, yeah, like how, okay. So let's get into maybe some of the, um, how do you teach optimism or what are some of the pointers for that? Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> if yeah. someone's like, I want to, yeah. yes, this sounds good to me. I want to become more optimistic <laughs> with my pain or, yeah. or resilient yeah, in general. So Part of it is kind of recognizing where you are. So some of us are naturally optimistic. I'm ridiculous. So I'm on the ridiculous end of the scale. <laughs> it can get me in trouble, right? You know, I, I, my, my husband's kind of the opposite. And so we balance each other. Me too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? us too. And so you kind of figure that's kind of what your set point is, but we can move a little bit in different directions, right? So I can be a little bit more realistic and think, you know what, stuff does go wrong and I need to prepare for when things do go sideways because they do. And I've had enough sideways things happen in my life to know that's true. And just like the pessimist says, you know, but things always don't go bad. You know, sometimes they do go well. I'm always going to prepare for the worst, but you know what? I'm going to hope for the best. That's a shift in pessimism. You start hoping for the best. That's a little different, right? So we all kind of, kind of go to where we are. And is there some wiggle room to move more towards the positive? Um, and, and a way that people could tend to become more optimistic is kind of sideways. And that's through gratitude. Ah, oh, yeah. 
I can and, see that. Yeah. I mean, there's something so powerful. It's almost impossible to be miserable and grateful at the same time. <laughs> right. It, 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 great gratitude tends to shift everything. So if you kind of find yourself at a really, really low, terrible point to take a moment and say, but you know what? I'm really grateful for my best friend. I'm so grateful for um, the food that's sitting in front of me. Mm-hmm. I'm so grateful that, you know, I actually don't feel as bad today as I did yesterday. Or I'm yeah. so grateful. I just saw the most beautiful sunrise. So, you know, it, it's, it's taking a moment to say, okay, I'm going to step away from all the bad and just open the door, crack open the door to what might be good. And gratitude's a really nice way to, to do that. Yeah. I, I, and I always, when I, um, in my room to thrive program, when I kind of introduce gratitude, I always say it's not meant, there's a way that you can take a tool like gratitude or experience and use it to shame yourself. Like, Mm. yeah, look at all that good stuff. So you shouldn't be unhappy. No, it's (laughs) that kind of like, right. Intelligence is like be able to hold two opposite things at the same time, be able to say that there's a lot of things that are difficult in my life right now. And, there are things that are good. I can just kind of yes. sit with both, yeah. you know, um, and that can feel hard. It can be hard to allow yourself in a, mm-hmm. in a way when you've become so fixated on, you know, your pain is the barrier, you know, yeah. and then you have to remove that before yeah. you get anything else in your <gasps> life. That's good. Right. Oh, that's so important that you said that yes. I, 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 you know, so before I did nothing but research, I did clinical practice. And so I worked with individuals with chronic pain, you know, across the rheumatic disease spectrum. And so many of them held the same belief that I will be happy when Yes. I no longer have this illness. I no longer have pain. I no longer feel fatigue. And it's like, oh no, that's that's a tough contingency to hold because you don't know when that is when really all you have is today. And so a thing we often focused on is how do you invite just a little bit of happiness and not make this contingency? It's something that humans do. We call it kind of the hedonic treadmill that we tell ourselves, I will be happy when I X. You know, I'll be happy when I have that job. I'll be happy when I graduate. I'll be happy when I'm married. And then we move that bar constantly so that we can never really truly be happy rather than I'm actually kind of happy right now for X, whatever that X is. Yep. One of the questions that is posed in one of the many <laughs> acceptance commitment therapy books, I can't remember which one yeah. now. Sorry, I want to give them credit. Oh, they're all was. good. They're all but good. <laughs> one of them was like, what, what if somebody could take your pain away, but it means it meant that you would never see your family again. Yeah. And you're like, oh, okay. And it's not the way to shame you. So like, so yeah, like, so you shouldn't feel bad. No, of course pain sucks, but yeah, yeah, actually like, wait, I, it's a way of not, maybe it's a reverse psychology, but like it's just shift. It's just shifting your attention to like, oh, okay. It's a new way of thinking about it. Yeah. Like I still have these, these relationships are important to me and they exist they coexist with pain. Does pain make it harder mm-hmm. to fully be present for me? Yeah, it does. If I'm in a lot of pain, then I'm not necessarily able to enjoy those relationships with as much ease as in times when I'm not in pain, but there's still some quality available, right? Quality in that relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. I mean, I love, and I love your idea of coming at optimism at, in a sideways fashion, yeah. you know, through gratitude. And I think the other thing I thought I was thinking of as you're talking about the hedonic treadmill is mm-hmm. I'm really interested in like, um, 
social media as mm-hmm. like a double-edged sword, right? Oh, Just like yeah. people are a double-edged sword, right? There's great people and terrible people. Um, but you know, there's such so many positive benefits of connecting to other patients on social media, but you also have potentially this algorithm that may be kind of showing you only certain kinds of stories that maybe, Hey, everyone else, it looks like everyone on social media is doing great. Why am I the only one? So, um, you know, I think it is super important to kind of remember that to compare yourself in that hedonic treadmill, compare yourself mm-hmm. to yourself. Yeah. Not necessarily. I know it's easier said than done, but mm-hmm. not get too caught up in, well, um, you know, it's okay. I allow myself to feel jealousy, you know, cause that's one of the best things about therapy is like allowing your emotions be like, yeah. Oh, my emotions aren't like enemies. Like, yeah. If somebody is like in total remission, I'm like, I am under, I think real logically I'm jealous of that. Cause I mm-hmm. wish I had that, but at the same time, I can also recognize that my disease you know, I can kind of do that perspective taking of my disease is also more well-controlled than some other people's, Mm -hmm. right? So it could be worse. Mm -hmm. It could always be better. It could always be worse. And what is, again, I'm living my life at the end of the day, I'm not living their life. So what kind of reorienting to the here and now Mm -hmm. has been just a really, um, meaningful experience for me yeah. and helpful experience. Yeah. I me. love it. And I, and I, and it seems like you really kind of connected to the, the to the, you know, acceptance and commitment therapy kind of, uh, uh, kind of the mindfulness and the, 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 and, the yeah. and, and the fact that we are full of emotions. So just because I love positive emotions and, and, and inviting those in our lives, it doesn't mean that negative emotions aren't valuable too, and mm. interesting and important and, and worthy of being felt, but often, you know, they just are emotions and that, that jealousy that we the story. It's like, oh, interesting. I was feeling jealous. Okay, well, that's just a human emotion. Bye bye. It isn't me. It just yes, is, right. I love that. Yeah, that non-judgmental awareness. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, wow. I didn't realize how judgmental I was about myself until I yes. had to practice. And it's a skill. Yeah. It's like optimism. It's a, you have these it's well-worn pathways that you're yeah. used to interpreting things. Like they, I know, Doctor. Uh, Russ Harris calls it like radio doom and gloom, you know, like the radio (laughs) in the back of your head that's playing, like no one will ever love you. You will always make Mm -hmm. mistakes. Like Mm -hmm. you're not good enough. Or in my case, you talk too much or, you know, it's like, well, I talk too much. Okay. I'll start a podcast. (laughs) Perfect. Right. You can channel that, whatever that is. But yeah, I think that's, you know, he called that radio. What would he call it? The radio doom and gloom. Yeah. Beautiful. You know, there's, there's a, a researcher here at the university of Michigan. His name is Ethan Cross. And he oh, wrote a book, he called it Chatter, right? It, it's Chatter, yeah. that we have these dialogues that are constantly going on mm-hmm. in the background. And often it's the inner critic just having a party. And, yeah. you know, it, it, the more that we can say, oh, I'm having this interesting thought that I'm a loser. Okay. Yeah. Fine. That thought isn't any more real than a cloud. And you let these things go. But, you know, it, it's becoming more mindfully aware of your emotions and your thoughts. And, more mindfully bringing in happy emotions. Cause you said something earlier too. You said, it's so easy to be negative. And that's true. We're wired for bad, for negative emotions. We're mm-hmm. wired to be fearful and angry because those are kind of survival emotions. The more that we're wary and, and, and anxious, the more likely we are to survive. And so they're easy, obvious emotions. Happiness and other emotions take a little more work. Memories from negative experiences like traumas are encoded so powerfully and so easily, Mm -hmm. but happy memories take work. So when you're in the middle of having a really lovely experience with somebody 
and you think, oh my gosh, this is such a great moment. Take a moment to savor that moment and encode that moment. What yeah. does it smell like, feel like? What are they saying? What are you experiencing? How can you remember this moment? Can you grab a memento? We have to work harder to, to encode our positive memories. The negative ones just stick right in there. It's so true. It's like they say with parenting, like for every one negative thing you say to your kid, you oh. have to say like 20 positive because they're, they're going to remember, Yes, you know, but yeah, it's so understanding the human brain can, is just so helpful for living with chronic pain and chronic, you know, stress from a chronic illness, because then you can be like, okay, this is just, this is not a personal failing that I'm focusing on the negative. This is my brain trying to protect yeah. me. Yeah. Thank you, brain, for trying to protect me. And <laughs> I'm going to, you know, you can focus on all the ways, you know, when you got a diagnosis like rheumatoid arthritis, basically a giant spectrum is possible for you, right? Mm -hmm. You could go into remission on yeah. your first treatment, yeah. whether that's med most likely medication and have total remission the rest of your life, or you could have a really, really rough, progressive, fast deterioration. Mm -hmm. That is the reality. And so the, the diagnosis doesn't, or and let me tell you me if this makes sense to you, but like, to me, it's like intrinsically, the diagnosis doesn't mean your life is over or your life is going to be perfect. The proof is only going to be, you're, you're, you don't know in that moment, yeah. you have to become tolerant of uncertainty. They can say, mm -hmm. okay, like 70% of people with rheumatoid arthritis respond well to current medications. Yeah. Right. So that's a helpful, you know, piece mm -hmm. of data that can say, okay, well, most likely then it's not like a total crapshoot, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, but at the end of the day, even if it was 99%, you could be in the 1%, mm -hmm. you know? So I guess um, this is begging the question, something that I didn't even realize was an issue for me or was a trigger of stress for me. Um, until my, until my own therapy experience was uncertainty. And I know we didn't talk about this beforehand when yeah. we prepared this, but I'm curious, does that, um, does that, has that come up in your research or, you know, how I think a lot of times with such, um, what did you call them? Waxing and waning flare-ups, yeah. remissions, changes over time that you have with a rheumatic disease or fibromyalgia, mm -hmm. you know, um, is there anything in this, you know, any resiliency tips for coping with that uncertainty? Because our yeah. brain wants to just know, right? Just tell me what's going to happen. I can adjust. Just yeah. tell me my future and I'll figure it out. But the <laughs> but not knowing. It's, it's not just knowing. me. I'm just talking about it. Okay, sorry. Yes. Oh, no, no. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. It's <laughs> okay. Be anxious. I, but uh, yeah, I, I think uncertainty or fear of the unknown kind of plagues most of us, especially if we're wired a little more anxiously. Yeah, it's <laughs> true. Because we don't know what's coming. And then you add the complexity of an illness that has so many different faces and they even faces within one person, so many different experiences. It can be absolutely overwhelming. And so I, I like kind of mindfulness to kind of quell some of that. When we find ourselves worrying about the future or afraid of the past, usually the best thing we can do is just kind of get in the here and now and just be kind of Whew, calming ourselves, which is being, where am I right now? What am I feeling right now? What do I have control of right now? And just That's kind so of recentering, right? Because no matter what we envision for the future, we're probably so wrong. <laughs> Whether it's really great or really bad, it just might be really great in a different way or, or maybe not as good in a different way, right? But we're terrible at prognosticating 
mm-hmm. where we are and what we're doing. I do. I have tried to remind myself of that. Like, think about your list of worries on March 1st, yeah. 2020, you yeah. know, those worries, <laughs> having that list of worries didn't protect you from what ended up. That was the thing yeah. I kept telling my therapist. No, 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 no. It's I'm good at worrying. It's great. It's helpful because I yeah. make a plan and I plan a plan B plan C. Yeah. If this goes wrong, then that mm-hmm. <laughs> they're like, how's that been working for you? You're here. Yeah. So something's not working. No, <laughs> but, but Cheryl, I love that you hit on something that's so important is that if you are to write these things down, I love people to journal. I think journaling mm-hmm. is so helpful. And then you do go back, even go back two months and say, Oh man, I was so far off base. What yeah. a waste of time to worry about those things. A whole other set of things happened that I could never prepare for, but here I am and I'm dealing with it. Yes. So, yeah. Survival it, kind of yeah. motivates the fact that you survived, like you've yeah. survived a hundred percent of your worst yeah. days. It's amazing. It's amazing what we do. And so the thought is that, okay, so if I'm not going to spend all this time worrying, what instead can I do? Mm-hmm. And so how do you put that? And she had that still energy needs to go somewhere. Why not put it towards something that's going to make your life feel better and richer? You know, why not text a friend out of the blue? Mm-hmm. Why not, you know, call somebody you haven't spoken to in a while? Why not do some silly act of kindness? Why not do something kind for yourself? Like take a bubble bath. You know, there's so yes. many better things we can do with our energy that we put towards worrying. So, so true. And it is when you live with fatigue, you really have to protect your energy. If you have ever felt completely lost or utterly alone while trying to navigate real life with rheumatic disease, listen up. I am here for you. I created an educational program to help you go from overwhelmed to confident, supported and connected in a matter of weeks. And it's called Room to Thrive. After earning a master's in occupational therapy and completing hundreds of hours of additional training, I created a step-by-step guide to help you truly thrive with rheumatic disease. This is the only program I know of that's designed to improve quality of life for people living with inflammatory autoimmune forms of arthritis, like rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis, Sjogren's disease, and more. During the self-paced lessons, you'll learn how to manage pain and fatigue, cope with stress, navigate relationships, and continue doing the things that matter to you and bring you joy. The goal is really to help you improve your quality of life and learn how to thrive with your rheumatic disease right now, rather than waiting for a distant day when it might be cured or healed. I really created the down-to-earth, practical, heartfelt resource I wish I had had when I was first diagnosed at age 20. If you want even more in-depth support, you can join the 12-week Room to Thrive virtual support group where you'll be surrounded by people who actually get what you're going through. People who will provide the encouragement, validation, and support that you deserve. Each group is expertly moderated so you don't have to worry about the kind of misinformation that spreads like wildfire in the free-for-all social media groups. If you're on the fence, don't just take my word for it. Here's what Katie had to say in March, 2023. I was lost and overwhelmed with my RA diagnosis. It felt overwhelming to know what to read, what to do, how to spend my energy trying to research on the internet. Room to Thrive did that for me. It's been like getting a crash course in my diagnosis along with a community who gets it. To see all the details, including the dates for the next support groups, go to the link in the show notes or bit.ly slash thrive room with a capital T and capital R. 
You can also just email me anytime at info at myarthritislife.net. And don't delay if you're interested because each group is capped at 16 people or less in order to make a small, intimate group atmosphere. Thanks so much for your time. And I can't wait to get started with the next groups. And I can't wait for those of you who are interested in the self-paced option to go ahead and join that at any time. Bye-bye for now. That's, um, I, that was the last thing I wanted to ask about before Mm -hmm. we talk about your book, which I'm really, really excited about coming out (laughs) later this year, but, um, I'm, I'm, I'm intrigued that you, that the center that you work at or that you, you know, that you do research at Mm -hmm. is for both chronic pain and Mm -hmm. fatigue because fatigue is like the forgotten symptom of rheumatoid arthritis, particularly, you know, in rheumatic disease, right? They're like, okay, how's your pain? Okay. Well, my pain might be at a three, but my fatigue is at a six and that's affecting my quality of life. Right. So what are, um, like, first of all, like what are some of, I guess the relationships between fatigue and Mm -hmm. pain that you've discovered and any, 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 uh, exciting late breaking (laughs) tips on fatigue would be exciting to know about. (laughs) Fatigue is so fascinating and it it appears to be a brain process too. It it, it appears to be mediated by kind of the same brain processes that make our pain worse. You know, there's actually a series of symptoms that kind of hang together and, um, it's pain, fatigue, kind of emotions, like negative emotions, like, like poor mood, um, poor sleep and energy, right? So these all kind of clump together. And what's so fascinating about them, we call them the space symptoms. So space, the final frontier. So, so space, so S, S is sleep. Oh, I just got that it was an acronym. K, yeah, yeah, yeah. A is for oh. affect. C is for cognition, how we think and E is for energy or lack thereof. And these symptoms clump together in really predictable ways. Like for example, when people have a, um, an infectious disease and your immune system gets all activated, well, how do you feel? You usually got pain. You're usually, you're usually sleeping or not sleeping well. Your mood usually stinks. You can't think and you have zero energy, right? So these symptoms all kind of clump together and they seem to be biologically related, right? So the cool thing is that um, fatigue is hard to address. So is pain. But the secret sauce sometimes is attacking these symptoms sideways. So if you can improve sleep, so if you're not a great sleeper and you figure out how to get yourself sleeping better, it's amazing how your fatigue and your pain both can be improved, right? Yes. So, and sometimes just getting your pain to be better gets you sleeping better and then your fatigue gets better. Yeah. I often think about how, yeah, the, the fact that these all kind of travel together, mm-hmm. it's good news and bad news, right? Mm-hmm. The bad news is that, a deterioration in one is yeah. going to affect the others. But yeah. the good news is that improvements in one yeah. an area can, can affect the others. And it's interesting that sometimes I know with rheumatoid arthritis, there's a certain group and I think they're just, they're figuring out the, if scientists are figuring out kind of the etiology and maybe mm-hmm. there's multiple diseases that are actually within rheumatoid arthritis, but, but some people, you know, they get all their inflammatory numbers, get better, mm-hmm. their pain gets better, but the fatigue can persist. Yeah. It's so yeah tricky sometimes yeah that's a good starting place to say okay can I can I hit at can I improve the sleep can I improve my mood Mm -hmm. um and and or can I improve my pain maybe and hoping that that will improve the fatigue fatigue too And, and then it's also the other piece with fatigue is how you use that precious precious resource like I mean I'm sure you've heard of spoonies you know yeah (laughs) yeah 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 right right Mm -hmm. and you know how do we do a better job of saving a spoon or two 
for the things that we love and the people we love in our lives and having that balance, right? I think that's one of the most crucial elements that even if you're dealing with hideous fatigue, if you do something you actually enjoy, sometimes I can even make the fatigue better. Oh, yeah. There's, yeah. and there's so many paradoxes too, because exercise is one mm-hmm. of the most evidence-based interventions, yeah. a just right level of exercise though. Yes. Yes. The problem is that it's hard to find that just yeah. right level for you. Yes. And people sometimes go, Oh, I'm going to go and go all in or go home, go big or no. go home. And then they feel worse. And you're like, yeah. they're like, exercise doesn't help. And you need to realize, okay, no, I just need to pull the brakes, put the brakes on a little bit, but I've really, I've been playing with this in my life. I'm now, Mm -hmm. I have a, I have an exercise bike that I've had for about a year. Ah, And sometimes I'll be like, I'll feel like I want to take a nap. And I'm like, let me just see if I can push myself to do the exercise bike for 20 minutes. And lo and behold, it's actually like, sometimes it's, I'm still tired. Yeah. (laughs) But other times I'm like, oh, actually Uh I expended energy, but then I gained energy. Is that interesting? And I think the other one that's really powerful is the power of being outside. So for those of us who are very cold right now, because the weather's crappy out, <laughs> there is a lot of power, even if it is chilly, to get outside and have a little bit of sunshine, get a little bit of fresh air, listen to birdsong, walk in nature. That is actually incredibly invigorating. And it's a way of getting just kind of gentle exercise, just going for a walk outside to, you know, at least kind of add, add some balance. You might be fatigued, but there's something really invigorating about, you know, we need to be in nature. It's kind of a human thing. Oh, and we totally. do so much better when we're exposed to a little nature and fresh air. Yeah. I feel really lucky living in the Pacific Northwest because yeah. even if it's raining, it's usually temperate enough to where you can yeah. comfortably go outside, you know, yes. um, except for like the dead of winter. Yeah. <laughs> there's <laughs> that. But, but I yeah. do have um, heated because I have rain odes also. So oh. I will lose my circulation if it's too um, hot or cold. Um, so, um, mostly when it's too cold. So I have heated battery heated gloves and battery heated shirt and battery heated socks, and (laughs) I can go out in the cold with those things on. (laughs) Love it. And you're going out and you probably feel better when you get back. At least I hope you'd feel better. Yes, I do. Yeah, Yeah, I do. Unless it's again, unless I've overdone it, I think being too cold or being too hot is a Mm -hmm. fatigue trigger. I've noticed for myself, um, and being, in the sun, but mm-hmm. I'm also, I'm very, my, my sister and brother are redheads. You know, I come yeah. from a very fair skinned yeah. family, you know, my genetics would suggest don't go in the sun, <laughs> you know, but, um, but I know that's really common with lupus yes. to be, like have heat or, um, sun intolerance, but I definitely yeah. experience it, you know, especially yeah. like part of it's knowing yourself, right? There's people who I know who are like, wow, I have rheumatoid arthritis. I moved to Arizona. I sit out in the sun, like a uh, lizard every day. And I'm the happiest person in the world. My joint pains. <laughs> all gone, you know, so knowing your patterns is so individual. I think that that is, that's really on the mark too, that, you know, all this is so individual and we have to be little scientists ourselves, you know, and and just be willing to experiment and do so incrementally, non-judgmentally, objectively, right? Don't judge ourselves because we tried something and didn't fail, but be willing to try and to find what is the right balance of exercise. What's the right balance of outside? What's the right balance of, of doing things with friends versus time alone versus self-care versus work and finding balance is critical. And you'll have different seasons of your life too. You know, Mm -hmm. for me, before I had a child, it was different, right? I was younger and I had different levels of energy. And after having a baby, you know, not to scare any, I always say not to scare anyone because everyone's different, but I did experience, you know, postpartum flare up like many people Mm. do. I had a great 
super easy pregnancy. Yeah. Like so I was teaching swing dance lessons through like seven months pregnant, you know, wow. just a little, like, look at me. I got the perfect little bit. You know, I had, I had got, it's funny because I always <laughs> say that, but then I'm like, okay, I had gestational diabetes, but it was like a really mild case that was like very much like, um, able to be addressed through like some diet and exercise interventions. Um, Fortunately, but, but then the postpartum, I feel like, um, you know, who knows what, right. Whether my condition, what trajectory it would have taken if I hadn't had a baby, but definitely it's gotten, you know, harder to, to control my, my underlying disease since having a child, Mm -hmm. totally worth it. hundred percent. But point B, you know, there was times, I think a lot of times when I was, um, you know, pre previously, um, I would think I had this mentality of, okay, just figure it out just figure it out. Like mm-hmm. this is this figure out the system, figure out the solution. And then you just do it versus now I, and, and I have a much more better understanding that like, you may figure it, everything is temporary, that kind mm-hmm. of Buddhist, you know, like everything's temporary yeah. and what worked yesterday might not work today. And that's not, that's a system problem. That's not a me problem. Like I didn't do that. That's just how how it is. That's how life is. So I might've said, okay, yeah, I used to be able to swing dance for three hours at a time, you know, and not stop and be happy as a clam, no joint pain, no fatigue. That's different now. And that's, it doesn't mean that I did something wrong. It's just, you know, it's just things change. So Mm -hmm. you get it. Yeah. It all comes back to mindfulness of being like, this is where I'm at now. I can, I can grieve, right. That it's where people say, okay, they talk a lot about grieving your old Mm -hmm self before your diagnosis, mm-hmm. but you can also grieve your old self at a point in your disease where mm-hmm. you were well controlled yeah. relative to now. Right? right. So there's all different kinds of layers of grief and I allow yeah. myself to grieve, but I also allow yeah. myself to say, and mm-hmm. I can still do my dorky, you know, TikTok yeah. dances. Now I'm not going out to the dance party all night long, but I can do, you know, a yes. minute long dance on TikTok. And that's really fun. And it's great. You know? Yeah. 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 So sorry. I feel like I'm talking too much. But no, I just, no. I love it because you are kind of the walking embodiment of so much of what I preach. You know, oh, how yes. do you have, how, how do you, Thank you maintain both having a disease and being realistic about it and, and mourning and being angry about it sometimes, but also, you know what? Hey, I'm going to lead my life and I'm going to do things that matter and I value and it may not be perfect, but I'm going to, I'm just going to do it. And I think that is really cool, Cheryl. (laughs) Oh, well I do. I, and my parents, we always have this argument because my, I always say, you know, my parents gave me like the best foundation, you know, and they're always like, we just got out of your way. You came out of the womb like this, you know? <laughs> but I'm like, no, especially actually when I read the optimistic child by Marty Seligman, yeah. um, I was like, wow, my parents did all of these things. Like yeah. they did, they, they did that kind of help me reframe. Like, is there a mm-hmm. different way of looking at this? And they were, they were just, they're amazing. So I think it does, um, it, it helped to have that solid yeah. foundation of, you know, self I, I do love myself very deeply, you know, yeah. and, the, and so I can, yeah. I can allow myself, I still can be hard on myself and say like, you know, like, um, be hard on myself when I'm having like a, a, a bad moment, but mm-hmm. I still fundamentally, like I grew up in the eighties and the self-esteem movement where you're like, you tell every <laughs> child they're special. Every child gets a trophy. And I'm like, nowadays, I know everyone's saying that, no, don't do that. But no, I'm no, like, no. worked for me. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think it was, it was the foundation. I think you're right. Yeah. That, that, you know, that's, yeah. that's such an important piece. I mean, I did, I earned, I did learn how to earn it too. It wasn't yeah. just like, you can be a total, you know, <laughs> horrible person and you're still special and we love you. No. Okay. It was like, <laughs> uh, yeah. So anyway, anyway, but okay. I want to move on to your, um, 
your chronic pain reset oh, book. Okay. Yeah. Tell me everything, oh. right, but don't tell me everything because okay. then people won't buy the book. I will. <laughs> so Cheryl, man, I, I, I think it was right in the middle of the pandemic and I probably watched all the Gilmore gear girls all season. And, you know, it was like, I was doing whatever I needed to, to kind of buoy my spirits. It was just such a hard time. And we're all working, we're working in zooms. And then my spare time, I'm just kind of like watching shows. And finally it's like, Oh, I've got to do something meaningful with this time. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's been something I've wanted to do is to translate the remarkable neuroscience research that we have done in pain in these, in, in, in rheumatic diseases. And, um, tell people what is it that we know and what is it we know about pain what is it we know about the immune system what is it we know about stress you know what do we know about social emotions or social relationships and positive emotions and gratitude of purpose in life and so i just set out writing a book that first thought about each of these topics and talked a little bit about the neuroscience what do we know what are studies telling us about how the brain works in you know in pain how the brain works when we have purpose what are the protective effects of positive emotions and just really what do what do we understand about positive emotions positive thoughts and physical health and so the book is kind of just sh sh kind of short chapters 16 short chapters of kind of looking at each of these topics from from um, you know, doing valuable life activities, to character strengths, to gratitude, to uh, to grit, you know, to perseverance, you know, and just you know, what do we know about the neuroscience? How and what is how does it pertain to people with chronic illness and chronic pain? And so I do that in the first sixteen chapters, and really what the goal is is to help the reader say, hey, there is a biological, physiological, neuroscience explanation for. How doing simple things like keeping a gratitude journal or going on walks or doing Kinex that actually might have health benefits. And so I really lay out what's the literature for the health benefits of Kindex. Mm, yeah. And then what, what, once we kind, I, I feel like, you know, the reader has a sense, oh my gosh, there's something here. Then I have them go on a little mini journey for 30 days. And one of the things that we don't do well as clinical scientists is we discover things that work well for patients, really cool skills and tips and tricks. And somehow we just don't do a good enough job of getting them to individuals who could actually benefit from them. So the yes. goal then is to introduce one of these new skills, strategies, um, uh, activities a day. And it allows the reader to say, oh, okay, so here's this thing called diaphragmatic breathing. Okay, so what is this? How is it done? What's this? What's you know? What, what's the evidence that might be helpful? And I'm going to give it a try that day. And so each day, it's just like, okay, try this. Sit here for five minutes and try diaphragmatic breathing. Oh, I hate that. <laughs> I never want to do that again. Or you try and like, ooh, I suddenly feel a little less pain and I feel a little bit better. I kind of like this. And so each day, one of these skills is evaluated. And if it's a skill you think you might want to explore a little further you put a little star there's a little star you can color it in nice. and then the next day you try something entirely differently new and then you try that skill on Ooh, 
I like that. Or, oh, this doesn't make any sense to me, right? And so at every single day for 30 days, a new skill or activity is tried. And it's everything from walking in nature to you know doing a gratitude journal to having a positive piggy make where you account something good that happens each day to um, really good cognitive behavioral skills like, um, like how to do activity pacing and things we may have learned in CBT for pain. But then also using... Um, techniques from ACT, from acceptance and commitment therapy, from dialectical behavioral therapy, you know, how to do calming um, activities, um, from mindfulness-based stress reduction. So you learn these different skills. And at the end of 30 days, ideally, you've had this kind of journey. Maybe you've done the journey with somebody else. And then you look back and say, oh, there's like five or six of these that I love. This resonates. And then the rest of the book is how do you put together a program that um, addresses kind of the multi-domain, um, the multi-domains that we need to have good well-being and health. And it's not just about being ill, it's also about skills that everybody can benefit from to lead a life that feels richer, more um, more rewarding, more interesting. And so we deal with, with um, uh, purpose in life. We deal with, you know, character strengths and, you know, how do we, you know, engage these more in our lives? And for some people, 10, 10 of these will maybe sound great and resonate for others. 30 will be fantastic, but it's all about what works for the individual. It's, it's tailoring a program that makes sense to you, that feels like you something that's something you want to do and something that feels engaging. And so that is kind of the whole purpose of the book is that, you know, people get to try on different things and find the stuff that they think that works for them and they're excited about and then building a program going forward using that. And so we'll have all sorts of tools and things online. I'll have um, aftonhassett.com will be up and we'll have all sorts of guided imagery and breathing techniques and other information there for, for, um, for the readers. But uh, so that, that's kind of it in a, in a nutshell. I love, I, first of all, yeah, as somebody who, it gets, you know, ha has a lot going on each day. I love the idea of, hey, take 30 days and just do one a day. One little thing. You can do that. A little yeah. bite size. Yes. I love that. It's a nugget. Um, yeah. And I, I, I just, I mean, like you're preaching to the choir when it comes to the knowledge translation piece of like, every time I go to a conference, I'm excited, but I also get frustrated because I'm mm -hmm. like, who's translating this information yeah. to the average person who lives with the, these conditions. So I love the idea that you're saying, look, like I'm going to make teach, it's like teach a man to fish kind of thing, yes. you know, based yeah. on the research. And, yeah. um, um, I'm just, I'm really excited to, to, uh, read it myself. I just oh, completed good. it. Yeah. I just did a six week program, a little bit different, but it's a, it was an app and it's an, kind of an educational and experiential for, um, people with IBS. It's mm. a, actually like a, technically they call it hypnotherapy. I guess it's different than what I thought hypnotherapy was. Cause it's not, it's more like, it really felt more like guided meditations, yes. you know, 15 minutes yeah. a day yeah. and a long way, but you would actually imagine it was really fascinating. Like, and I was a little skeptical at first, but I was like, again, I mean, what do I have to lose yeah. a little bit of time and money if it doesn't yeah. work? But that's why I think it's always good to do these things where you're like, I'm going to try it, mm -hmm. right? I'm not going to decide. I don't like it before yeah. trying it. And, um, you know, even though some of it was a little, I was like laughing a couple of times because it was like, <laughs> imagine a warm light, like coming down, like really specific, like coming down your esophagus, like into your stomach, you know? And I was like, yeah, actually like it's, this is changing my relationship to like my GI or my gastrointestinal health, because I used to be like, oh, I, I kind of, I hate my stomach. It's not working well. And now it's like, oh, I have these like positive 
you know, I was able to replace some of those negative ideas with like, oh, you know, like my, my GI tract is doing its best and, <laughs> and positive improvement is possible. And it, yeah. but anyway, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm saying that as like an example of something yeah. that, you know, it was like really bite-sized mm-hmm. and, um, and it was also enjoyable to do. And this sounds really enjoyable too. you know, yeah, learning diaphragmatic breathing, learning mm-hmm. one exercise, mm-hmm you know, from ACT or from DBT or CBT. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you kind of have that, like that self-management piece of I'm going to take this, Mm -hmm. you're going to present the tools as the author, right? And Mm -hmm. then the patient or whoever's reading it, it's their responsibility to then take it and apply it in their lives. Yeah. 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 And and that's kind of the way it works, right? I mean, you know, we go to physical therapy and then we have to kind of walk away and use those things or occupational therapy. Same thing with CBT. But where we tend to fail um, patients is we don't give them things that resonate with them. It's like kind of this one size fits all. So you guys do this and you're like, ah, that doesn't really feel like it hits my symptoms. And it doesn't really feel like it makes sense, you know, based on what how I understand my pain. Whereas this allows you to kind of sort through there to, you know, maybe pain reprocessing therapy. You know, they're, they're all different skills and all different um, uh, uh, activities that just might resonate with different people. Yeah. And so we just hope people will give it a try. I love it. No, and, you, and um, yeah, I, I'm excited. I'm excited about it. So I'll definitely put a link to, is your website up yet or no? It's not up yet. I will but, share that with you. The book is released September 5th. And so we're in the process of doing the recording. So part of what we, what we wanted to add to the book is that, you know, on the day that we're doing guided imagery, there's a couple of guided imageries you can try oh, the yeah. day we're doing progressive muscle relaxation. There's a progressive muscle relaxation that you can, so you can use, you can either read the book and read the instructions and just kind of do it, or you can actually pop in your earphones and go to the site and you can, you can use the, uh, the recordings to help you, help you with your practice. Awesome. Oh, this is so helpful. Well, do, do you have some time for a few rapid fire questions? Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Sure. Hit me. (laughs) Yeah. Well, this is a biggie one, but you know, what are some of your favorite words of wisdom or encouragement for people newly diagnosed with a rheumatic disease or fibromyalgia? Oh, seek a mentor. Seek somebody who has been there, who who can help you navigate, to navigate the healthcare system, to ask the right questions, to um, and 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 to lean on because this is new. It's a big adjustment. So so find somebody that you can connect with that's been there before. Oh, I love that. That that's come up a couple of times actually yeah. in the in yeah. the podcast. That's a really wise one. Um, do you have a favorite maybe mantra or inspirational saying? that you think is particularly helpful for people with chronic pain? Oh, keeping it simple. It's, it's kind of what works for you. I like, you got this because I, yeah. when I tell you, I got this, I got this. It yeah, helps. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think when you find one that works, put it someplace where you see it, like a little sticky note or have, mm-hmm. even have a little medallion within it. I got this just to help us remember that, you know, that, that yeah. mantra can be helpful. I love that. Yeah. I, I do that. I use that one. I also do like, we can do hard things or I can do yeah. hard things, you know, it might be yes. hard, but I can do it. You can do it. Um, and you mentioned the Gilmore girls of, uh, is there <laughs> any uh, like book or movie or show that you've been really enjoying recently? Oh my goodness. Um, well, this is just way off base, but murders in the building. Oh my gosh. <laughs> love that one. Love I've been both seasons. Yeah. Only murders <laughs> in the building. Yeah. Only murders in the building. What a so good. Nothing I just, like- I've been watching Shrinking. I don't know if you've heard of this with Jason Segel and Harrison Ford. It's about a therapist who goes rogue and starts kind of like 
breaking a lot of rules, but it's, oh. it ends up being more about the interpersonal relationship yes. people, but yeah. Oh, it sounds awesome. Yeah. I, he's, he, it's great. Um, and what's something that's bringing you joy right now? Oh my goodness. Um, sunshine. Yeah. Sunshine it's brings me such joy. It's, yeah. it's sunny here in Ann Arbor. You know, I, I am, I am such a pushover for anything positive. And so, yeah, yeah. sunshine brings me joy, but so does cookies. Oh yeah. Oh <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a chocolate chip cookies would be like on my list of like mm -hmm. three, you can only bring three foods onto a desert Island. <laughs> like cookies are going to be on there. Right there. And then what, this is a big one, but what comes to mind when I, when I say the phrase, you know, or what does it mean to live a good life and thrive with rheumatic disease? It means whatever you say it means, right? So we all have different definitions of what is a valuable life and what is a rewarding life. I think the most important thing is to determine what it is that you want to do. What is your purpose? Yeah, and that's yeah. something we talk about in the book. And it's at the kind of the very end of it. It's at the end of the chapters and it's towards the end of the 30 days. But when people have rheumatic disease, what they thought was their purpose or where they were going often is upended. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't mean that now you no longer have purpose. It just means your purpose might be a little bit different yeah. and not to stop asking, what is it that I can do that is meaning and meaningful and rewarding? Yeah. And so I think that's probably one of the most important things is to identify what is the next level of purpose and what will make life feel rewarding and meaningful. Yeah. I, that really resonates. I remember, um, I don't know if you know her, um, Dr. Uh, Bronnie Lennox Thompson. She's an mm -hmm. acceptance and commitment. Th she's an occupational therapist. And uh -huh. then she got her PhD and um, she's in New Zealand, but she was one of my first interviews I ever did. Um, cool. But she said one of her questions that just kind of broke my brain, but in a good way was she said that when she asked a lot of her patients um, and she leads groups of people with chronic pain um, through acceptance and commitment therapy, she said, what would you do if pain wasn't a problem for you? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I was like, but it is a problem. Like, you know what I mean? That's what broke yeah. my brain. But I was yeah. just like, what would you do if it wasn't? Because yeah. it's, if you've been living in pain and it's so, like you mentioned earlier, you know, our brains are wired yes. to pay attention to pain and mm -hmm. it's a problem. We want to solve it, but it's a different way of approaching it. Like what if yeah. pain isn't actually the only barrier and you could, yeah, yeah. it's That's like so good. It's so good. It's so good. Yeah. It's so because good. Because yeah. your purpose in life when you live with pain sometimes becomes alleviating pain. Oh, it's that's it. my purpose. And, yeah. and 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 I well, I can have purpose in life when my pain is gone. Yeah. <laughs> and I get it for acute from really severe acute pain. It's really, really hard to mm -hmm. focus on anything else. I don't ever want to yeah. minimize that. Yeah. yeah. But when totally we have agree. like the kind of low levels of chronic pain yeah. that, you know, are the more like stiffness, soreness yeah. that's not necessarily mm -hmm. like screaming. Like I'm thinking of dental mm -hmm. pain right now. Like yeah. I don't know if I had to live with some dental pain for yes. that would be a whole other level of therapy. I would it becomes survival. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And there's going to be days that it's like that, but ideally every day is not. And yeah. when do you open yeah. up the door for, I love it. Yeah. And then, um, what do you have any social media links? I'm sorry if you already sent them. But... Oh yeah. You know, I, I do a little bit of Twitter. I, I wish I had more time because I kind of love it, but it's, it's at, at Afton Hassett. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'll put, I'll put these links. Um, okay in, in the show notes, but it's good. Sometimes people are, are listening and they have their phone and they're like, Oh, I want to just look her up right now. Oh, um, nice. So I'll put that 
um, link in the show notes, but thank you so, so much for taking the time. I know. Yeah. You're a very busy researcher, Aww. very prolific researcher. Um, and I think it's, um, you know, again, good uh, silver lining from the pandemic that you were able to, you know, achieve your maybe kind of a bucket list item. It sounds like of writing a book, yes. right? It is, it is. And, and and thank you so much for having me on. I love your podcast. I love what you're doing for, you. for people who have arthritis and, uh, and, and, and live with rheumatic disease. Oh, it's thank really- you. It's been a dream. Definitely for sure. So thank you. All right. Bye-bye for now. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the arthritis life podcast. This episode is brought to you by room to thrive an educational program I created from scratch to help you go from overwhelmed to confident, supported, and connected in a matter of weeks. You can go through the pre-recorded course on your own, or you can take the course along with a support group. Learn more at the link in my show notes, or you can always go to www.myarthritislife.net. And if you like this podcast, I would be so honored if you took the time to rate and review it. I also encourage you to share it with anyone you know who might benefit from it. I also wanted to remind you that you can find full transcripts, videos, and detailed show notes with hyperlinks for each episode on my website, www.myarthritislife.net. If you have any ideas for future episodes, or if you want to share your story or wisdom on the podcast, just shoot me an email at info at myarthritislife.net. I can't wait to hear from you. Bye.